0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29 as we continue our walk through God's Word this morning, specifically here at Bloomfield. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, and we are now at a point in Genesis where uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, uh, the grandson of Abraham, has gone away to a far country, to Haran, to find a bride that he might bring her back to the promised land and fulfill the covenant promises God has made to him. If you've been with us in our study, you know that Genesis has shown us the portrait of many families who are far from faithful. We've seen many examples of families who are without faith, many who uh, do not follow God's instruction, many who disobey, many who sin. And yet in the midst of this, we continually see how God blesses and God provides. And we learn over and over and over again in God's Word, and specifically in Genesis, that, that God's blessing in our life his covenant with us is not based in our faithfulness to Him, it's based in His faithfulness to us. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you today, who perhaps you come struggling in your faith, perhaps you come struggling with sin. I pray that this word will speak to you as it has spoke to people throughout the history of the church, as we learn more about God, more about His plan for us, more about the gospel, as we look to Genesis 29. So this... Lord's Day, we're going to look at the first 30 verses of Genesis 29 out of reverence for this Word of God, if you're able, if you would stand as we read it, and then I'll read the Word and then pray for our time in it this Lord's Day. This is what God's Word says to us, Genesis 29, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it for... Out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Naor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well, and see... Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah And serve Laban for another seven years. If you would pray with me. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us understanding to this word. That you would give us understanding of the gospel. And Lord, that you would transform our lives through it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. couple of nights this last week, I noticed as I walked outside at night how how clear the sky was, and perhaps you have this experience where you go out at night and you see on a clear night where you can see the moon and the stars, you you begin to get just this understanding of how immensely large the universe is, and, and the splendor of it, and the, and the greatness of our God who created it, and then you think about things we can't see with the human eye, but Technology now allows us to see. For example, if you've seen pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, a telescope that was launched into space back in the 90s in the space shuttle program that can take pictures literally billions of light years away. In fact, I read how they've re-engineered the cameras, cameras on the Hubble Space Telescope so that it can take pictures of objects some 12 billion light years away. Now, the question that then comes to mind is, well, why... Or scientists, astrologers, why why are they so intent on seeing something so far away? What what is it that they hope to learn? Well, that question was addressed in a Newsweek article about the Hubble Space Telescope. This is what it pointed out. That the telescope looks at radiation from so far away and hence so long and finds that it should carry messages about the universe's childhood and shed light on how the cosmos began and grew that ultimately what scientists want to discover is how did all this start? How did we get here? What are our origins? And the more that technology allows science to peer into the universe, the more scientists see how complex the universe is. And as they see this, many are then wrestling with the question, who created this? How did it come to be? It's so much more complex than so many thoughts. One scientist admitted to this, and he said it this way, as we survey all the evidence, the thought instantly arises that some supernatural agency must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? What this means is that as many are looking For the answer to how did we come to be, eventually they will be pointed to the biblical reality that we are here because our Creator God put us here. Because our Creator God spoke the universe into existence. Far beyond what the Hubble Space Telescope can ever see. Our God created it all. That's what we've learned from the very beginning of our study of Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw a picture of that creation, about how in that creation, God set aside a sanctuary for man. And He created Adam and Eve, and He put them in that sanctuary, in that garden. And and He gave them His Word. And in His Word, He helped them to see that they had dominion, that they were to exercise that dominion. But ultimately, they weren't in charge of everything. Ultimately, they weren't who He is, which is God. He put a tree there to remind them that they had dominion over an area, but not over all, that they were to be responsible to God and to His Word. And from that we saw rebellion. We saw sin. We saw the fall. So from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to where we are now and continuing on to Revelation 22, we see the consequence of that fall. But in that we see redemption. Redemption. Through Jesus Christ. Because in Genesis 3.15, God promised that an offspring would come from Eve who would eventually destroy the enemy. The Scripture gives a vivid picture that he would literally crush his skull. That offspring is Jesus Christ. And so between Genesis 3.15 and where we are today, what we've been seeing is that God raises up these Families. And in these families, he makes this covenant promise to them. And in that promise, he speaks of this offspring that's going to come. And the amazing thing is, is that as you read about these families, Abraham's family, Isaac's family, now Jacob's family, what should strike you is that these are far from perfect and faithful people. In fact, what should strike you as you read about them is how short they fall, how dysfunctional they are. And that should comfort you and I, because that's who we are. We're here this morning as a group of people who fall short. We're here this morning as, on our best day, a very dysfunctional family. Not just our biological ones, but our church families, our relationships. We, we fall short. We sin. And, and in that, we have a great opportunity to see the grace of God. Because as I've already said, God's faithfulness to us is what secures our covenant covenant not our faithfulness to him and we're reminded of that as we look at genesis 29 today as as we look at what becomes a very dysfunctional continuation of the dysfunctional family that jacob's already in remember jacob situation and getting into where he is now he has deceived his brother in essence tricked him schemed against him he has dis- his father his mother and father's relationship is one of dysfunction and then in this as he lies to his father and his brother his brother Esau now wants to kill him and so he's gone away to a faraway land under the umbrella of you need to go find a wife but the timing of it is you need to get away before your brother Esau kills you that, that's where he's coming from not exactly a picture of biblical faithfulness but we do see faithfulness in God and as we look to it, as we look to this text, I think there's things we can learn here about God and about us that not only comfort us but encourage us and bring us to points of repentance and faith in our own lives. So if you would, look to your notes. And the first lesson that we see here from this dysfunctional family, we see it in this relationship between Jacob and Rachel. And as we look in the text in verses 1 through 12 at their relationship, we're reminded that God graciously provides. Think of the setting. Jacob, again, he is fleeing from his brother Esau, but, but the, the, the way this is being portrayed, the, the way that his mother and father agree to this is, it's time for him to go find a wife. Uh, he's not to marry from the Canaanites like his brother Esau has. He's not to marry from these wicked people. No, he is instructed specifically to go to his mother's family, to her brother Laban, to find a wife from her family. And so he is on this journey to go, again, not out of his faithfulness, but in the midst of it we see God's faithfulness because God meets him and God provides for him. Now think for a moment, in the context of our day today, how is it that we normally speak of and look towards the process of finding a spouse? We live in a culture now that celebrates the idea, it's, uh, it puts reality shows together, the idea that if you just assemble the right group of, of potential spouses and put them through the right tests and questions and experiences, th- then you will find the perfect one. Now, th- this is not a new idea. In fact, this is how most people, I think, go about Relationships whether it's a reality show or it's just the reality of their life. They think, well, if I interview enough prospects, if I meet enough people, then eventually somebody's going to rise to the top. Somebody's going to shine among them. Somebody's going to give me this feeling. Something magical's going to happen. And then that's how I'm going to know the perfect one, the right one. I think that methodology, though, is far from what the Scripture presents us with. That's what we see the Scripture presenting us with. It's not that we in our efforts need to go find the perfect one, but that we need to follow the perfect one who is God. And as we walk with Him, He not only guides, but He provides. I had a pastor say to me years ago when I was in college, something along these lines, he said, if you want to find the right spouse, then run the race for Christ. And... Along the way, see who's running beside you. And then turn to him and say, would you like to have four children and move to Bloomfield? And <laughs> from that laughter, you can tell that's not quite how it worked out. Well, it did work out that way. But. But it's so different to think about dating and courtship and marriage that way than the way the world portrays it. And yet, I believe that's exactly the picture we have here. It's the picture we've had in Scripture already. Think of Abraham. Abraham wants to make sure that Isaac marries the right person, and so he instructs his servant to go to the land that he is from and to bring back from that land one who is from his family to marry his son. And so as his servant goes, he too comes to a well, and he too meets a woman there who God has brought there who will indeed be the spouse of his servant's son. Here we see God providing in such a way for Jacob. Very different than the world says this needs to happen. But God is the one who orchestrates it. You think of the very beginning of marriage itself. It's not that Adam is sitting there saying, you know, gee, if I just had a helper suitable for me. It is God who points out the need. It is God who brings Eve to Adam. It is marriage existing in the mind of God where we see the origins of it. Not in the mind of man. And here we're reminded of that as God provides a wife for Jacob. He does it through somewhat ordinary means. Jacob here is traveling. This is the intention of his journey. As he goes, he comes to a well. And at that well, he finds three flocks and the shepherds of those flocks. He begins to inquire of them. They are sitting here at the well, the text tells us, because there's a large covering on it, and this covering stays there until enough of the shepherds come, remove the covering, and then water their flocks. And well, as this is going on, Jacob begins to ask them questions. And he asks about where they're from. And he asks them if they know Laban. And then you see God's providence in that these men not only know Laban, but they point out to Jacob, and there's his daughter Rachel, and she's coming here right now. And again, this whole process is one of God's provision. Then we see in the text something that might seem a little unusual to us. Jacob suddenly, as Rachel's coming, turns to the shepherds and says, you guys need to hurry up. <laughs> he says, you shouldn't be sitting around. You need to water your flocks and get going. Now, commentators have two different ideas on why this is. Some say that, that Jacob, likely himself, had done a lot of shepherding because of his family and because of what God had blessed them with. And perhaps he's looking at these shepherds as just lazy, and he's saying, it's not time for y'all to sit around and be idle. Go ahead and water your fox and go. Others say in the timing of it, knowing more about Jacob's character as we've seen, that it might be that Jacob here sees Rachel coming and automatically his heart is drawn to Rachel and he just wants these other guys to get out of the way. <laughs> and he wants to spend time with Rachel. He wants to talk to Rachel. That's the intention of his journey. And so he wants to pursue that. Whatever the case, the men wait. Rachel gets there. And then Jacob removes the covering from the well, and then Jacob waters the sheep of Laban. But what does this teach us? Well, again, I believe it teaches us that God graciously provides. And just as He provided for Jacob, He provides for us. And in His provision for Jacob, He provides for us. Because in providing Rachel for Jacob... While there will be many other relationships that end up coming into Jacob's life through this union, Jacob and Rachel will have a son named Joseph. And as we will learn about Joseph as we continue in our study of Genesis, Joseph will be one that is used greatly by God to save the people of Israel from utter extinction. At a point when there is famine in the land and they would have died otherwise, God so uses Joseph, to save an entire people. And from that people eventually will come our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it is through Him that we have life. And so you can see, even in God's provision for Jacob, His provision for you and I this morning, we're reminded too, in the way He works in Jacob's life, of the Gospel itself. You see, Jacob, like so many others in Scripture They're they're a picture to us of Christ, and yet they all fall short of obviously being our Messiah. Jacob leaves his country to go to a faraway land to bring home his bride. That's exactly what it is Jesus does for us. He leaves heaven, he comes here to a faraway land, to a far country, a country that the Scripture says we are sojourners in, we are strangers in a strange land, to rescue us through the Gospel, that he might bring us home to a new heaven and a new earth. Jacob is a picture to us of what it is Jesus does for us. And that's something we can learn from this dysfunctional family. Number two, we can learn from the relationship that Jacob has with Laban. And as we look at this relationship, I think we're reminded of the schemes of the enemy. That Satan, our enemy, is always scheming against the things of God. We saw it in creation as God created Adam and Eve and He put them in that sanctuary of the garden. We see the enemy come in as a deceiver. We see him scheming then, maligning then, trying to pull Adam and Eve away from the very... Hands of God and we see them in their rebellion succumbing to the schemes of the enemy So again, God is sovereign and even there we see him with a sovereign plan of redemption But in that plan as God graciously provides we need to remember There's an enemy working against our God There's an enemy who hates the things of God and it's because of that enemy that we set aside days like today to pray for the unborn because of the millions that have been murdered, every one of them is an image-bearer of God. And it is the very enemy, Satan, who hates those who bear the image of God and he seeks to destroy them. In this text, I believe, we see Satan scheming through Laban. Laban is one we've been introduced to before, if you remember back... In Genesis 24, where Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, he comes to the home of Rebekah, and and in that we're introduced to Laban, Rebekah's brother. Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot at that point about Laban. There's a couple of things, though, we can draw from that text. One is it seems that one of the things that catches Laban's eyes, even back then, is the wealth of Abraham. It's all the stuff that Abraham's servant has brought to give to the family, of what will be the bride of Isaac. The Scripture notes that Laban sees these things, and the Scripture notes about Laban that when it's time for Rebekah to return with Abraham's son to go back to marry Isaac, that, that Laban doesn't want her to go yet. In fact, Laban tries to stall her going. says, let her stay with us for a little while longer. Again, we don't know exactly why that is, but one of the indicators could be that Laban's hoping that maybe he'll get more stuff out of this deal. That, that if she stays behind, that if somehow that servant is to leave without her, that he'll return with more goods, more stuff. And so the picture we have of Laban is a very worldly individual, probably a very greedy individual, who's not focused on the things of God, but focused on the things of this world. And that's the picture again we see here in this text. And it is that profile that we see the enemy using, that of Laban. Remember, Jacob's goal, Jacob's responsibility, Jacob's task was to go to this far country to find a wife and then to come home. In fact, his mother even said, listen, you're just going to be gone a little while until your brother calms down. And yet, that's not what happens. A little while turns into some 20 years. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way the enemy uses Laban to stall Jacob, to keep Jacob there. We see very quickly that Jacob stays for about a month in verses 13 and 14 with Laban. And then they have this exchange beginning in verse 15, one that looks somewhat benevolent of Laban at first, where he comes to Jacob and basically says, Listen, you're you're my kinsman, you're my relative, and you shouldn't be working for me for nothing. Now right there, we know that already Jacob is working for Laban. Again, this at first might not look like anything unusual, and we may think of Laban as he's just wanting to take care of one of his relatives. But as the Scripture unfolds, we begin to get a picture of a Laban who is worldly, who is corrupt, who is deceiving, and who just wants stuff. And Jacob is one that God is going to bless with a lot of stuff. And so Laban wants to hold on to that, because as long as Jacob's around, Laban prospers. I think in that, we begin to see one of the schemes that the enemy uses greatly in Jacob's life and in our lives, and it's that of distracting us. You see, most of us, I think, think of the enemy in the form of him putting things against us, of him maligning and destroying and these evil things happening, but I think oftentimes one of the ways that the enemy seeks to thwart the plan of God is just by distracting us. Here we see a picture of a distracted Jacob. Look at your own life. Do you you see a picture of a distracted believer? Think, think, how often have you thought about, you know, I I know I need to talk to this person about the gospel, but I just haven't had time to do it yet. The, the, The opportunity hasn't presented itself. Think of things that you may think of during a sermon as applications of the Word. You know, I really need to do this. But then you leave and what happens? All these other things come into your schedule. And on the way out of the parking lot, the fan belt breaks in your car. And you get home and the water heater's busted. And you know, all of a sudden, all these kids get sick. And all this stuff happens and, and we get busy and we get distracted. And some of those things, friends, just happen because they happen. But I think at times some of those things happen because as long as the enemy can keep us distracted and busy, he can keep us unfruitful. And I think that's a picture you see here in the Scripture of Jacob who... Not only a state a month, but as he starts talking to Laban, enters into essentially this this covenant, this agreement with Laban where he's gonna work for him for seven years to marry Rachel. Again, remember, Jacob was supposed to go find a wife and come home. Abraham's servant went, found a wife for Isaac, came home. But now you have Jacob saying, No, I'll stay for seven years. And he's not in the promised land. He's not in the place that God's called him to be ultimately. He's distracted. Scripture tells us that the way this comes about is he loves Rachel. Now Laban presents to Jacob both of his daughters. says in verse 16 that he had two of them. The older was Leah, the younger was Rachel. We know already from texts that we've read, we'll be reminded in this one that would have been, what would have been common in that day would have been the older perhaps to, to be blessed over the younger, the older to get married before the younger. And so here you would expect that, but the Scripture tells us that Jacob's drawn to Leah. Verse 17 says, Leah's eyes were weak. Now, now we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, some believe that it falls down to the, 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 the portrait of the eyes in Scripture in this day and age. Jacob uh, would have seen very little of Rachel in Leah's physical form. They would have been veiled. And chances are their eyes were the only thing exposed. That's all they had to go on. So, Leah, Rachel... Rachel's got better eyes. And he's making his decision based on that. Others say, well, no, that the, the eyes were presenting a picture of something else, that there's weakness there about her. Others say, well, no, it's just their whole physical appearance is different. We don't know. In fact, in my study of just trying to dig and find something, one of the things that stood out to me was, in some of the ancient languages, what the very names Leah and Rachel mean. Leah's name means wild cow. Picture that. Jacob, uh, I think you can marry one of my daughters, so let me introduce you to wild cow over here. Or Rachel, whose name in the same language meant uh, young lamb. Wild cow, young lamb, which one do you want? Probably not going to go with wild cow. We don't know exactly what it was that drew Jacob to Rachel, but what we do know is that he loved Rachel. The indication would be that from the first moment he saw her, That he loved her. The indication also then would be that Laban probably knew this. And Laban from the beginning had a plan in mind to scheme and to malign and to deceive to keep Jacob there as long as he could. But at the end of the day, I don't think that Jacob's greatest enemy was Laban. I think Jacob's greatest enemy was himself, was his sin that he was unrepentant of and that he was running from. Which brings us to the third lesson there. As we look to the relationship of Jacob... And Jacob, we're reminded that our sin will find us out. See, the Scripture presents us with a picture of an unrepentant Jacob who is fleeing from deceiving his father and his brother. He's running towards this foreign land. But at no point in that do we see him repenting. Do we see him turning from that sin? And then he finds himself in this scenario where after seven years of hard labor, he goes to Laban, he reminds him of his agreement. And so Laban throws a, a big party, a wedding party. It's time for any of him to give his daughter in marriage to Jacob. But then in the night, in the darkness, Laban deceives Jacob. He gives him his daughter, but he doesn't give him the daughter he had agreed to. He gives him Leah instead of Rachel. Scripture indicates that Jacob is unaware of this deception until the next day when the light reveals he's been tricked. I wonder at that moment if the thought occurred to Jacob of what was happening. You see, Jacob tricked his father in darkness. Scripture says that Isaac couldn't see. Isaac was darkened. He he couldn't perceive what was going around him. And and in that darkness, Jacob takes advantage of that. And he presents himself to be someone he's not. He He comes in as if he is another. And in doing that, he tricks his father into entering into a covenant relationship with him that his father was not intending to enter into with him, but to enter into with his brother. And now, fast forward... Years later, an unrepentant Jacob wakes up one morning and finds that he too in the darkness has been deceived. That he too, seeking to enter into a covenant relationship with one, has been tricked into entering into it with another. What we see in this exchange with Jacob is what the Scripture says we see in our own life. Prophet Hosea reminds us of it as he says this to God's people who are unrepentant and rebellious. They sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. What does that mean? It means, friend, that when you and I sin, we we are sowing seeds of unrighteousness and they will grow and they will produce fruits and we will reap what we sow. And that no matter how you look this morning on the outside, no matter how much you seem to us to have it together, if there is sin in your life that you have not repented of, you are sowing seeds of unrighteousness. And the Scripture says that something's going to happen with that. But the Scripture says that not only have we all sinned, at least you think you haven't, it says that the wages of sin is that there's a consequence of sin that far exceeds this temporal life. You may see people in wonder at times. Well, look at so-and-so. Look at all the sinful things they're doing. And yet, it seems like everything just goes right for them. There'll be a reckoning for them one day. This world is but a blink. God says for those whose sin, the result of that sin is death. The Scripture tells us that is eternal condemnation and His wrath being poured out Forever. We will reap what we sow. There's good news. The good news is God has given us a better Jacob in His Son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we see something amazing happen. Jesus reaps the penalty of the sin that we have sown in order that we might reap the benefit of the seed of the righteousness that He has. You see, we, we sin the gospel says if we will repent and turn from our sin, it doesn't say we become perfect at that point. It says we are then covered in the righteousness of Christ. Then we don't reap what we've sown because Christ bears the due penalty for our sin on the cross. And then the beauty of it is then we get to start reaping what we haven't sown. Then he blesses us as we are covered in the righteousness of his son. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. But in order for us to experience that, the light must shine in the darkness. See, Jacob both deceived and was deceived in darkness. And friend, you and I are deceived, and we deceive others when we live our lives in darkness. But the light of God's Word shines light on our darkness. And the light of God's Word offers us the opportunity to not only escape reaping the wrath for the sin we've sown, but to live covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a beautiful picture. As this text goes on and wraps up in verse 30, we find that Jacob reaps what he sows. As much as God blesses him and is gracious to him, all kinds of dysfunction comes out. He's now in a situation where he's married to two sisters. And then from that, further complexities will come as childbearing years come along, and all types of dysfunction will exist in those relationships. And yet we're reminded that it is in the midst of that dysfunctional family that God will continue in his promise to raise up an offspring who will crush the enemy. And that's a good word for this dysfunctional family today. No matter how messed up we are, God is still at work, and God still has a plan. And God is carrying out that plan and the scripture says the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Christian, be encouraged. If you don't feel like you've got it all together, well, neither does anybody else here. But who does is Christ himself who offers us through the gospel the opportunity in this dysfunctional family to experience the blessing of God and the plan of God for the glory of God. For all eternity. And if you're not in that family. You're missing out. And we invite you to come into it. Through repenting. Through turning from your sin. And confessing Christ as Lord. And the scripture says. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those of you who have. Perhaps you come in this morning again. Feeling like in your best efforts. You've fallen short. Because you have. Feeling like life is just overwhelmed you because it it has and and just overwhelmed with wondering Lord what, what are you doing here be reminded this world is not our home things can get worse than they are but not forever because God in Christ promises us a new day and a new creation when all is made right not because of what you and I bring to the table but because of who God is and what He offers us through Christ. And so, Christian, continue to repent and have faith, repent and have faith, repent and have faith, and invite others to do the same. If you would pray to that end with me. Father God, we ask in Jesus' name that You would help us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Lord, our flesh craves to have 10 things we can do to have a better year, and 12 ways we can make our, bar- our marriage better, and 5 keys to financial success. But Lord, there's really just one thing we need to do today. And that's repent, to turn from our sin, and as we do that, to have faith, and to trust in Christ and not in ourselves. Lord, would you help us to do this, and to invite others to do this. In the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.